Welcome to the Left MN Radio Hour, sponsored by Left.MN, the Minnesota website that leans left. I'm Aaron Clems with co-host Tony Petrangelo, and on today's show, we talk about the news of the week, the Republican who's backing marriage equality at the Minnesota legislature, and we interview Representative Steve Simon, chair of the House Elections Committee, about potential changes to Minnesota's election laws. But today, first, the weekly wrap. This week, Tony discovered that if you look deeply into the body movements of some Harlem Shake videos, you can find hidden Minnesota political news stories that he puts in the weekly wrap. So, what did you find this week, Tony, when you were looking at all those Harlem Shake videos? <laughs> I I was looking at a lot of Harlem Shake videos this week. I don't know why, for some reason, that, that meme struck a chord with me or something. <laughs> I mean, I, you knew that it had crossed into Minnesota's like political mainstream when there were big stories about how the Mound West Tonka hockey team had six of their top players suspended for participating in the creation of a Harlem Shake video. Which they suspended them for that? Yeah, and they ended up losing their sectional... Uh, Why did they get suspended? Because they got up on the cafeteria tables and were dancing around, and they actually sent the tape to the police for possible charges. That's ridiculous. Yeah, well, the Mount West Tonka you know, school district apparently overreacts to memes. They don't like fun. Yeah, and then they, and then they, <laughs> and they don't like hockey either, apparently. Anyway, well, that, 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 the thing I like about that meme is it seems pretty fun. It, I like memes that are fun. And that's it, a fun meme. And it's short. <laughs> yes. You know what I mean? Yes. I like that. It's like 30, 30 seconds. 30 seconds. Yes, Boom. and that's it. Meme. Yes. It's fun and short. There you go. It's a good, good meme qualities. Yeah. Uh, yeah, uh, not a whole lot of news today. Obviously, the big story uh, involves a certain Republican senator, and we'll talk about that in the next segment. Yep. Um, but there was, there, was some, uh, there was some other news uh, early in the week in response to a House uh, rules change. Uh, Republicans decided on Monday that they were going to act like petulant children and file an obscene amount of amendments that had no purpose other than to slow down the works. Well, they were trying to celebrate President's Day, Tony. Is that what they're trying to do? Yeah, I think so. Um, so if you're not familiar with this rule... By just thing, exercising their right to file amendments to a, their heart's content? A bazillion of them. Yes. Uh, so for those of you who are not familiar with this story, quick update... Um, a couple of weeks ago, House Democrats considered a change to the rules that would require people to pre-file their amendments to legislation. So if they wanted to amend legislation on the floor of the House, they would have to, within 24 hours of the debate, actually put on the website what their amendment would be. Now, this may remind you of something. Read the bill. Read the bill, right? You know, remember that whole thing about how we can't believe that you know, all these things come out of left field and we don't even know what's happening and people don't have a chance to vet these things? Well, apparently Republicans like that, the ability to surprise amend things without any public notice when they're in the minority now. Well, when it doesn't involve Obamacare. Right. You know, when it, it doesn't, well, some of these might end up involving well, Obamacare, but yeah. There you go. Um, so anyway, the, in, in response, they lost this nine-hour debate. We had a nine-hour floor debate about this rule. Nine hours. And then when they lost it, they decided their, their next step was to file a whole bunch of amendments, including irrelevant, stupid ones. And yes, I'll say it. it was, there were some stupid amendments in this 160-amendment list. Well, but, just the act of filing that many amendments is pretty stupid. Yeah. I mean, what, what do you hope to get out of that? Uh, to show people that you're a, Upset? Petulant, a petulant child. Yeah, I mean, what, what, is, I don't, what do you prove by doing that? That you can do it? Rem oh, and remember, and remember that their argument against this rule was that it was anti-democratic and they wouldn't be able to amend legislation if it went into effect. And then they went and filed 160 amendments against three non-controversial bills. Therefore proving that their argument against it was entirely 
Yes. Ridiculous. Exactly. And then acted ridiculous in the process of proving their ridiculousness. Well, they're going to stamp their feet and they're going to and they're going to pout and they're going to, you know, do whatever else it is to show how dissatisfied they are, but I'm not and it's only February. I know we have so much time. Yeah, this isn't even a budget bill or anything. It's, this is like this is like when you're on a five six hour car ride, and in the first twenty minutes, someone starts crying and yelling, <laughs> and you're like, "Oh my God, we have another four and a half hours yes. in the car with this person." Yes, that's where we're at right now. Yes, in the Minnesota House, <laughs> and uh, the Republicans are the baby in the back seat who just won't <laughs> shut <laughs> up. Um, we used to be in the majority. There's a lot of there's a lot of that adjustment going around the Capitol right now. I think people are finally starting to settle into their new roles, and I don't want to be. Well, no, I, I yes, I I can be totally as unfair as I want to. Once um, they did that, I mean that all oh, that was just a stunt. It was a straight up political stunt, and it. I mean, you sort of lose credibility going forward when you do something that ridiculous. Yeah. You know what voters want you to do? They want you to work. Yeah. They don't want you to play around and play stupid parliamentary games. They want you to get stuff done. Absolutely. Um, we have two new members of the House of Cre- uh, Representatives, um, and they were sworn in this week. Uh, Clark Johnson, DFLer from St. Peter, and Tama Tice from St. Cloud, um, which doesn't change the balance of the of power in, our, in the in the uh, in the chamber, but it is two new members to get used to out of the 134 that we've got. Um, we had our, was it, is this, is this, is this um, where do we go from here 3.0 now? I, I, was there a 2 I thought this was 2.0. It was 2.0, that's right. Yes. So um, if you're not familiar with this, the Republican Party, of course, in their... It's, it's a tour. They're doing like a, 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 a uh, they're getting the band t- back together, and they're doing a whole <laughs> tour of the state, doing yeah. there's where do we go from that, from here sort of sessions. Yep, and, um, and, the, and, the, and that session landed this week at the University of Minnesota, and Larry Jacobs... Um, uh, moderated a discussion about what the future of the Republican Party will be. Between? Between Marianne Stebbins, champion of Ron Paul, and Cullen Sheehan, who you may recall, jumped off the sinking ship of the Senate before all the bad stuff happened. Or um, or oil and water, as there is. <laughs> exactly. So Cullen Sheehan is, uh, is about as mainstream establishment a Republican as you're going to get. Marianne Stebbins is one of the insurgent Ron Paul faction. Um, well, it was uh, the... Uh, Eric Black, I believe, at MinPost wrote a piece about about that, and in his piece about it, he he mentioned that uh, Marianne Stebbins, much of her talk was laced with the word liberty. Liberty, <laughs> freedom. <laughs> she, she, I, I don't remember how he how he how he phrased it, but weaved the word liberty through much of her statements or something like that. It was it was a uh, yes, I, I can see that, and in just some of the quotes that he had of her, where it was all about. The liberty movement and how we got to foster liberty and government is in the antithesis of liberty. And oh, I'm going to say the liberty to tell you that you're listening to the Left MN Radio Hour on AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. Liberty! Um, and we're talking about the news of the week. And uh, we've got a great interview later this, uh, this hour with Steve Simon. Uh, Steve is a, is a, he's a really important person on election law and a lot of these issues that Republicans are confronting right now result from election results, um, including their desire to try to switch the election system around by constitutional amendment. So, um, was you, you put something about this Pew poll. Are people not happy with the Republican Party or something? <laughs> well, it, it, it's hard to tell exactly what the case is. It could be just despondency on the part of Republicans. Yeah. You know, just completely... They've reached capitulation. Yes, yes, they're, they're done with it. They're, they're checking out at this point. Now, uh, the uh, Pew poll found... Uh, people self-identifying as Republicans at uh, historically low rates, 22% uh, 
of the respondents uh, self-identified as Republicans, which is a catastrophically low number. Yeah, and if I recall correctly, another poll showed Obama's approval rating at 60%, the highest that it's been since, well, early in his first term. Okay, I haven't seen that poll. This same yeah. Pew poll, I think, had Obama at 51%. Yeah, I think, you know, depending on the poll you're looking at, you, you see lots of different numbers, but I think the trend is pretty clear. that His um, approval ratings are certainly as high now as they've been since you know, early on in his presidency. Since since the uh, the summer of angst when there were the town hall meetings about health care and his approval ratings kind of went down yeah. the first time. <laughs> well, I know I think that, you know, the uh, the obstructionism at the national level is really getting on people's nerves and uh, to the extent that the Minnesota Republican Party decides to adopt the same strategy in the legislature, well, we'll see. And there might be on questions about election law and also about bonding bills where we really need to see Republican support for things to move forward. Well, you might be seeing some of this moderation from a very surprising member of the Minnesota Republican delegation. Yes. That's one Michelle Bachman who, in another uh, MinPost piece, <laughs> keep going back to that, uh, uh, they were talking about how she has is, seems to be trying to remake her image as uh, more, you know, mainstream Republican, still conservative, but not uh, crazy. <laughs> well, good luck with that. Um, yes, exactly. I, I guess it'll take some work to walk that back. It is really amazing to think about how quiet she's become, because. With the news we're about to talk, we'll talk about this in the second segment about gay marriage, marriage equality, and, and Republicans starting to jump ship um, and support marriage equality. We haven't heard a peep out of her about marriage. No, and she was, which one, was her she signature was, issue yes, when she was in the legislature. That, she was on the forefront of that issue. She was a trailblazer in hating the gays. <laughs> she was definitely a trailblazer in that regard. Um, and you know, what is she, she wants that. She wants more road spending now. She wants. Yeah, to she wants to try to. Well, that's what this this article is saying. Was she wants to. Uh, Focus on expanding the I-94 corridor in her district, um, which, you know, she wants to do work in her district. This is not Michelle Bachman. Like, anybody who's been following Michelle Bachman knows the last thing she cares about is anything that her constituents would help them well, in what, any, any way whatsoever. If there's one thing that she has exhibited some potential support of, it is massively overbuilt road construction projects. So, you know, kudos to you, I guess, on that one. Um, but at the same time, it's interesting to watch her trying to, well, she's always kind of uh, fashioned herself as outside of the mainstream of the Republican Party. Now she suddenly wants to be considered part of the mainstream of the Republican Party. Um, and, well, that's going to be a lot of work on her part to make that happen, probably. Um, Bachman, of course, uh, what did she, she was praising President Obama, is that what you... Uh, well, it, for for some of, for some of the things he was saying in the State of Union about infrastructure spending, our Kenyan, yeah. our Kenyan, our socialist. Kenyan socialist president, she was she was saying that some of the things he said in the State of Union were were, were good ideas. This is where you know, this is where you know that she's she's realized electorally she's in trouble and she has to kind of tack back to the center a little bit because she would never. <laughs> But it's praise Obama for anything. Well, here's my question. I, I don't know if I just missed it, but did she give President Obama a big kiss? At the end of his State of the Union address? I didn't see that. I mean, because I remember a certain kiss. Oh, a deep... It's possible we could do some Photoshop. deep, passionate kiss between Michelle Bachman and President Bush. You're remembering, you're remembering it differently than I am. Uh, those were the days. Those were the days. All right. You're listening to the Left MN Radio Hour on AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota, sponsored by Left.MN, the Minnesota website that leans left. Be right back. I'm staring space and don't say much. 
con los terroristas. Welcome back to the Left MN Radio Hour on AM950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. When you hear the bass drop, you can know that me and Tony are going to start jumping around here in the studio. Boom! There it is. All right. Well, this uh, this week we got some interesting news on the issue of marriage equality, and the news is this: Brandon Peterson, who is a senator from Andover and a Republican, a Republican who actually voted to put the marriage amendment on the ballot, uh, announced this week that he would be willing. He was in the House when he voted that. That's, way. that's true. He was in the House. Now he's a senator. He's moved over to the other side, the more august, powdered wig side. Of the legislature. I almost and lost it when you said that. <laughs> and he's apparently become, it's probably, apparently this has uh, inspired a change of his beliefs on this issue. And he is now announcing that he was willing to co-sponsor marriage equality legislation with as long as it includes a couple of things that we'll talk about in a minute. Um, but he is the first Republican to really break with his party on this question, at least uh, since the last time this happened, like when John Krizel and Tim Kelly and a couple other Repub- Republican representatives voted against the amendment. Steve Smith, I believe. Steve or... Smith, correct. Many of whom are no longer there. All of whom except for Tim Kelly. Yeah, and Tim Kelly has said that he will not vote for marriage, for marriage equality. equality in this session. So he, hasn't, he didn't say anything about civil unions, which we'll get into, but yeah, yeah he did say he will not support marriage equality. But this does change the dynamic, and I know we've heard rumblings from, and I've heard rumblings from, Republican uh, Republicans and also from people who work on this issue at the Capitol telling me that there are going to be more Republicans who are going to come out of the woodwork. But um, so far we've heard from two. One, Andrea Kiefer, um, a representative um, who gave an, gave an interview to Lavender Magazine where she basically said... Gave a Zellers-esque response. Yes, a Zell- very good Zellers-esque uh, response, which is, you know, I want the stadium to succeed but i don't want to vote for it or something like that yeah yeah so i i love gay people but i'm not going to vote for him is what she said no she no, didn't say she that didn't say that she said that you'd have to watch lincoln to figure yes. out what her position is and i'm not sure what that means either um but i do know that brandon peterson's statement was pretty unambiguous did she really say that yeah she said you watch go ahead watch lincoln you'll figure it out <laughs> i haven't seen lincoln yet so maybe i should do that okay i'm sorry that's funny i think i think she means the lincoln one that was done by steven spielberg and not oh the not one. the vampire hunter not the vampire oh, hunter one. Oh, okay. nor do i think it's the uh, special on national geographic fe- uh, featuring uh, bill o'reilly's lincoln book oh so i think it's actually the spielberg bill o'reilly book. wrote a lincoln book yeah it's well, called where have you been man i dude t- t- i don't pay attention to bill o'reilly sorry <laughs> that's probably a good move on your part um, so anyway, we've got now we have a Republican who's come out and said that he's willing to co-sponsor this bill. But he has a couple of things that he wants to make sure are not in that bill. And one of them is that he wants to make sure that there is no um, there's a, there's, a requ- there's no requirement that a religious figure be forced to uh, adjudicate or officiate same-sex marriages. And, and that I don't I'm, think anybody's saying that should be the case. I, I'm cool with that. Are yeah. you cool with that? I'm I'm cool, cool with that. The whole point of this for a lot of people, was religious freedom, allowing, uh, you know, pastors who want to marry gay people the freedom to do that. Yeah. And allowing, you know, the flip side of that is allowing pastors who don't want to marry gay people the freedom to do that as well. The problem right now is is people don't have the freedom to, make, to marry gay people. Right. They have the freedom to not marry gay people. Yeah, it's a religious freedom issue. It's the folks who have been prevented from officiating and adjudicating the marriages they want to be able to do. They're the ones who've actually been silenced and being prevented from, you know... Um, showing their, uh, using their religious, religious beliefs to inform their actions. No, nobody that I know is interested in forcing churches to do things 
Right. Regarding marrying people that they don't want to do. And that's exactly the point. And I think part of the reason why this announcement, because I know that whatever whatever Brandon Peterson wants to be written into the bill, as long as it doesn't destroy the intent of it, it'll get done. And I don't think anyone has any problem with this idea that you shouldn't force people to marry folks you don't want to marry. And if and the beauty of this is that even if Brandon Peterson's support is not the one vote that tips the balance, it does a great job of illustrating to the, the public at large that these arguments about religious freedom, about suddenly the jackbooted Gestapo thugs are going to come in and force your church to marry gay people when you don't want to, is not true. And he provides, he provide, I don't want to say he provides cover, but that's what he does. He provides cover for folks on that argument, and he says, that's not what's going to happen if we pass marriage equality in the state of Minnesota. And... And for that purpose, it's, it, his, his, his uh, announcement is a really big break for those advocates. Well, and, and it, he was the first Republican to just come out, you know, not to use a pun, to just come out and say he was supporting marriage equality yeah. um, and not sort of be sort of undecisive about it. But, I mean, you know, whether or not that's going to break the floodgates uh, is, you know, we'll wait and see. But it, it certainly couldn't have been easy for him to make that decision to do that. Yeah. No, and I know that he's faced some pushback from his constituents already. Um, and, you know, as a senator, he's got another three and a half years to deal with that kind of pushback from his constituency. The other thing to keep in mind is he's only, what, 27? Yeah, he's very young. So he he is of a different generation than most of his colleagues. Correct. Um, so, I mean, certainly people of his generation are, are going to be more favorable towards marriage equality than people of the older generation, yeah. and that could be something that maybe is working uh, against this issue, but, you know, regardless Repub- of that, it's certainly a, a positive development. And Republicans under the age of 30 support marriage equality. Oh, by and large, yeah. By, by, by a significant majority. Especially the liberty wing. Yes. Yeah, so I mean, maybe, maybe Marianne Stevens can come help them out or something. I don't know. Well, I, I, some of the, the liberty people are, are pretty strong on this issue, from what I've heard from. from yeah. Them. And we also have DFLers who are not going to support marriage equality. We know that. Um, one was cited, one was quoted in the MinPost article about about Brandon Peterson's conversion. Uh, uh, Leroy Stump? Leroy Stump from... See, SD1? Um, I believe that's right, yeah, from Plummer, which is uh, northwestern Minnesota, I think. Yeah, the far northwestern corner. And he and Leroy Stump actually voted for the marriage amendment, putting it on the ballot. Uh, he won't vote for marriage equality. Um, he says it's a sacrament in his church, and he's Catholic, so he won't vote for it. Um, and so it's going to be a tight... We talked about this before, but it'll be a, t- a tight vote. So you started to see people already floating the idea of civil unions. In fact... What I find fascinating after listening to folks uh, against marriage equality this whole last couple of years describe the fee- describe that civil unions are nothing more than marriage in some other name. Now Tom Pritchard, the head of the Minnesota Family Council, is even floating the idea of civil unions being an acceptable response or an acceptable kind of substitute for marriage equality. I, I just I don't even know where yeah, to start with yeah, that. It's, it's you know I mean. Whatever. I, I guess I don't really care too much about what he has to say. Um, it is. It's one of those things where it's profoundly hypocritical. It, it's, well, yeah. You know, welcome to welcome to the real world with with that side of the aisle. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, so the 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 I don't know the civil unions. I guess I don't have a problem with it. If if that's the step that has to be ta- taken before we get to marriage equality, then that's the step that has to be taken. The the reality is marriage equality is going to happen at some point in the future. It's coming. It's, it's going to happen. It's, so it's, it's whoever's fighting faster. it right now is fighting a losing battle. They will lose this battle at some point in the future. That's inevitable. So the, the, I guess the, the question is, why fight it? Yeah. Why, why, why keep wasting your time on this issue? Why not just go on to things that actually matter and you can do something about? 
Yeah. I mean, we see the same things happening in Illinois right now, right? Illinois passed a civil unions bill, I think, what, six, seven years ago? Um, maybe not that long ago, actually. I think it was maybe it was three or four years ago. But And now they're moving toward full marriage equality. I mean, we're going to see that motion across the nation, and I don't know why we'd want to make that. I mean, if, if, it, if, it, if doing it is just to try to assuage some people, um, I, I mean, I want people to have more rights, um, but I think that doing anything short of full marriage equality is denying rights to people. Well, but those rights are already denied to them. Yeah. So if they get civil unions in the meantime, it's better than the situation we have right now. It's like it's like Obamacare on the way to universal care. Okay. Well, I can see that analogy. I think you're right about that. But we're going to see. We're, we we here on Left MN and Left MN Radio are still fighting for full marriage equality, and we welcome Brandon Peterson into the fold um, as a supporter of marriage equality, and that's fantastic. So congratulations to him. Kudos to him. And we'll see where this goes in the next couple of weeks. All right, you're listening to the Left Man Radio Hour. Next, we're talking to Steve Simon about election laws. Representative Steve Simon up next. Welcome back to the Left Man Radio Hour, sponsored by Left.mn, the Minnesota website that leans left. You can download podcasts of the show, learn more about the stories we talk about at Left.mn. Today we're uh, joined by Representative Steve Simon, DFL representative from St. Louis Park. Uh, representative Simon chairs the House Elections Committee, and there are a lot of election law changes being considered this session, and we're really glad to have him with us today to discuss some of these so we can understand what they're all about. So, Representative Simon, thanks for joining us today. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thanks. Fantastic. Uh, so, what, what, what is the state of the Minnesota election system? Are we in a good place, or are there, is there a lot of need for change? I think both are true, if that's possible. I think we are in a good place. We have a sound, well-functioning, mostly fair election system, but we can always do better. There are things we can do to make it generally more accessible to people and more transparent to the public. That's what I think we're going to try to do this year and into next year, uh, this kind of two-year chunk, and uh, there's a lot to tackle. Well, I mean, one of the, of course, the, the issue the Republicans thought was the big issue to fix the election system was uh, the requirement to add photo identification. And, of course, the voters rejected that last fall. Um, what do you think that vote says about people's opinions of the election system we have here in Minnesota? I think it was endorsement of our current election system by and large. I think the failure of that constitutional amendment was a huge wake-up call. It shows to me that people really were listening. And it's a great lesson in politics generally. And it really reaffirmed my my faith in the validity of that lesson, which is you can make deep arguments to people and not treat them like children, treat them with the respect that they deserve, and voters will really listen. This was an issue that in the summer of 2011, in a reputable poll, the Star Tribune poll namely, was polling at just under 80%. It was 79%. And and the poll was probably accurate. And if it wasn't accurate, it wasn't too far off from accurate. A huge majority said in a poll that they endorsed the idea. But this is the classic example of something where the support is a mile wide and probably a millimeter deep. Hmm. And the more people heard, the less they liked. And the more they understood the real consequences, intended or otherwise, um, the less likely they were to support it. And in the end, shockingly to many of us, including me, who uh, was against it, um, it failed and failed by a wider margin than the other constitutional amendment, which is just amazing. So I think the outcome was good from my standpoint, but more to the point, it shows that people can absorb this kind of information and make make a good judgment. Yeah, and it also, I think, showed that people don't like the idea of uh, creating election law changes simply for partisan advantage. 
And we've heard that kind of uh, response echoed by Governor Dayton, who said that early this session that he would not be supporting uh, election law changes that he thought didn't get bipartisan support. Um, what, what, are your, what are some changes that you think have broad bipartisan support? Well, I, I think that there's some campaign finance changes that do. I think there's a bipartisan appetite, for example, for modernizing the system in terms of both uh, contributions and expenditures. Um, neither of those measurements have been changed in terms of dollar amounts in 20 years. And there's a sense that with all the outside money, with these oceans and oceans of now unregulated cash, thanks in part to the U.S. Supreme Court, but to other forces as well, that uh, th- there's a need to sort of equalize or help equalize the voices. And what I mean by that is you have in this last election cycle the, the almost comical situation where in some of the most hotly contested, highly targeted races, where the candidates themselves are almost side players in their own races. Uh, I mean, it's been the case in recent years that outside groups, whether it's the party political caucuses or interest groups, have spent a lot of money. That, that hasn't changed, but the scope really has changed. So now you have the situation where some candidates, the candidate spending, instead of amounting to, say, half the spending or three-quarters of the spending, where the other outside groups sort of augment the spending by the candidates, here you have it where it's completely flipped, and you have the candidates spending a relatively small proportion of the overall money spent on behalf of candidates in that race. Yeah, and they're not only spending less money, but they're also kind of at times stepping aside and saying, I have no control over the messages that are being used by others on my behalf or to support me. That's exactly right. I speak from experience. Uh, When I first ran, the same thing uh, happened. Uh, We we had carefully crafted what we thought was a... um, a strong message, and others who purported to help me were kind of undermining that. Yeah. I mean, and especially the, the areas in the legislative races where you saw this the most were the battlegrounds um, up there in, in Senate District 5 up on the range, and also down here in the cities in Edina and Egan, you had groups that were pouring in excess of a million dollars uh, into right. some of these races. That's right. Um, and, you know, you have the situation in a House race now where candidates who take the state subsidy, which is the vast, vast majority of them, I'd, I'd wager 95%, um, all but a very, very few take it, they limit themselves in a House race to, in terms of campaign expenditures, somewhere in the 35, 37,000 range and then double that for the Senate. Meanwhile, it's sort of child's play compared with what outside groups on both sides, to be fair, can come in with. So you've got the comical situation of a House race where the candidate is capped at 30-some thousand, and then some behemoth group comes in and spends 150, 200,000 on the same race. So I'm not naive. I think that we'll raise the contribution and the spending limits, limits somewhat. It's not going to alleviate this problem, but it might help to equalize um, the megaphones a little bit. Yeah. Um, I want to ask you about a couple of fairly big changes to an electoral law system, that some of which have been proposed, some of which you actually have co-sponsored, but would be a significant sweeping changes in how we elect people in Minnesota. Um, the first one is, uh, actually, you considered a bill in your, in your committee the other week, um, HF 224, and I don't expect you to the number off the top of your head, but it would expand mail voting in rural areas in Minnesota. Right. Um, and we, we know that from the debate about voter ID, for example, that that saves money, especially in rural parts of the state. It oftentimes expands access for voters who have a tough time driving a long distance to get to a polling location. Um, how, what's the prospect for that bill, first of all? Well, it's hit a snag. 
And as your listeners may or may not know, in Minnesota, any township or city with a population uh, that's not in the metro area, a city that's not in the metro area or any township, may, if it has 400 or fewer voters, not people but voters, may, at its own discretion, vote entirely by mail. So no polling place whatsoever. Uh, only vote by mail. And about 46,000 people in Minnesota vote that way, which isn't insignificant. This bill uh, would simply change with the times. Since that number hasn't been upped since the inception of the statute in 1987, it only makes sense that with population growth and as a matter of convenience to up that by some reasonable amount. So the bill that was introduced and heard in committee would up it to 1,000. Um, but there's been some GOP opposition to that. Um, and I think we're sort of in negotiations now about how best to handle that. The townships are interested in this. Cities a little bit less so, so maybe that's one way that we can compromise. Mm-hmm. But that's a good example of something where, because of the, the uh, Governor Dayton's bipartisanship pledge, you know, the Republicans are equal partners with Democrats in trying to craft this legislation. Yep. You're listening to the Left MN Radio Hour on AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. I'm Aaron Clems with co-host Tony Petrangelo, and we're talking with Representative Steve Simon, who's the chair of the House Elections Committee, about some election law changes that are in the legislature this session. Um, I, I also noted by looking at the, at the website that there were four Republican co-authors of that bill who removed their names from the bill the day before you heard that bill in committee. Is that part of this question of the snag that you're talking about? You know, that's probably an indirect consequence of that. And I will tell you that one of the people who withdrew his name told me explicitly the reason he withdrew it. It had nothing to do with the bill. It had to do with um, Republican anger about uh, a House rules change, which maybe you or your listeners have been keeping track of, that got some GOP members um, upset. Uh, huh. And as a consequence, they withdrew their names some from from some DFL bills, and, and I was one of them. But it had nothing to do with the underlying bill. In fact, this member said he still supports the bill, but it was more symbolic than anything. Oh, that's very interesting to hear. Um, I'm, I, I, I did get to watch the uh, floor session of the, uh, 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 how should I put this, the 160 amendment that were filed, pre-filed right. by. So I didn't know that it had spilled over to some of those uh, bill Bill oh, yes. too. Mine isn't the only one. There have been several bills um, where Republican members have withdrawn their support or withdrawn their name, let's say. Okay. Um, another a- issue that's come up that has been a fairly contentious one, although it kind of surprises me that, that the kind of contention that's attracted is early voting. Um, there have right. been proposals for early voting, um, and we were treated to Representative Kiff Meyer and Dan McGrath from Minnesota Majority stating that they believe that early voting is unconstitutional. Um, because it's not on election day. Um, uh, What's your opinion of this argument about constitutionality? I think the argument is baseless. If early voting is unconstitutional, then for the same reason absentee voting of any kind, in person or by mail, is also unconstitutional. I don't think that argument is going to get more than two inches in any court. Um, You know, there are two ways to do early voting. One is straight up early voting, and that's the uh, the hearing at which you heard those comments. Simply do what every state that surrounds us does, which is have some early voting period, say two weeks, before the election at which people can cast their final ballot. Uh, 32 states have uh, some form of early voting, either straight up early voting or the second option, which is no excuses absentee voting. The Most of those 32 states, including every state that surrounds us, North Dakota, South Dakota, Iowa, and Wisconsin, have both early voting 
and no excuses absentee voting. Other states that have early voting include the liberal bastions of Arkansas, Oklahoma, Kansas, and Texas. I hardly think they're in on the the liberal conspiracy to uh, hijack the election system. And they're apparently all operating unconstitutionally, too. Well, uh, you'll have to take that up with um, Senator Kiffmeyer and others. Okay. Um, now, I know that early voting is uh, also, it adds some, a little bit of expense sometimes for, <clears throat> for perhaps county auditor's offices and city offices. Um, how much would that cost to add a, a, an early voting period for the state of Minnesota? We're not sure, and we think there could be some offsetting costs because of the, uh, the, the fewer resources that are likely needed on Election Day. The standards for what is required on Election Day for every precinct in the state of Minnesota are pretty stringent. You need, no matter what the size, and this is why the mail-in option is so tempting to smaller jurisdictions, you need at least four people in every precinct. Uh, between election judges and others, you need all the equipment. You need to be ADA compliant, Americans with Disabilities Act compliant. And, and there are a lot of things that every precinct in Minnesota, regardless of where they are in the state, need to do and need to have. And we believe that at least after a cycle's worth of data, that we could actually uh, reduce costs on the back end, meaning on Election Day, because we would be sort of, in effect, metering out uh, over a couple-week period, if not more, the actual voting by people. And keep in mind, when, when it comes to that no excuses absentee voting, I would argue we sort of have that system already, informally. Yeah, because no one has to say or prove right. that they have the excuse. Exactly. Um, and and I, th- th- my favorite statistic is that in the city of Edina, in 2008, a quarter of voters voted absentee. I have a hard time believing that they were all on a business trip that day. I think what happened was, and there's no shame in this, there's no harm in this, I say let them do it, that for reasons of convenience, uh, many voters who don't want the hassle of waiting in line or who are otherwise busy getting the kids to soccer practice or dance lessons or whatever, vote by absentee. They check that box saying they believe they'll be out of town that day or out of their precinct. They're not really sure if they will be, and maybe they're sure they won't be. But for whatever reason, they check that box, and I just don't want to make those people lawbreakers. Why shouldn't people vote by absentee? Yeah, why not? Uh, for that reason. Exactly. All right, you're listening to the Left Man Radio Hour on AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. We're talking with Representative Steve Simon, and we'll continue this conversation when we come back. Welcome back to the Left MN Radio Hour on AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. It's sponsored by Left.MN, the Minnesota website that leans left. You can download podcasts of the show. You can also see some more information about the stories we talk about here every week at Left.MN. And we are joined today over the phone by Representative Steve Simon, Chair of the House Elections Committee. We've been talking about election law changes that are being considered in the Minnesota legislature this session. Um, but before we get back on the topic of uh, election law changes, last week we had Jason Alvey, uh, who's, uh, I believe, your constituent, Representative Simon, uh, who owns the Four Firkins uh, beer store in St. Louis Park. And he's, he's pushing really hard for a vote uh, on a Sunday liquor and beer sales bill. And I was wondering if you have any opinions about that. Yeah, I got to tell you, I, I really sympathize with him and others who I've heard about when it comes to Sunday sales. By the way, not only for alcohol, but for car sales. Believe it or not, those are two areas where we forbid those industries from being opening, uh, open on Sunday. And it would seem to me that it, it would be a natural sort of free market art, art argument to say that those businesses ought to, only if they want to, 
be open on Sundays. But what's frustrating, despite my um, sympathy for that argument, is that those industries themselves are vehemently and, uh, uh, and mostly in a united way, uh, notwithstanding Jason Alvey, they are vehemently um, against uh, being allowed to have that authority, and that's what makes it very difficult at the Capitol. It's one thing, uh, they're basically saying, please regulate us. Please don't free us from a regulation. Please regulate us. And that makes it a kind of weird political dynamic at the Capitol. So yeah. I think the best way over time, I believe, to get Sunday sales would, would be to convince the actual purveyor of the products and services that it's not going not gonna to kill them. Um, you know, New York has an interesting compromise. It's the only state, I believe, that does this, where they say uh, you've got to be closed one day a week and you can choose the day. So some would choose to be closed on Sundays. Some would choose to be closed on a Monday, Tuesday, or Wednesday. Hmm. And that's the way they've dealt with it. It's an interesting compromise. And I know that there's a hearing up there at the Capitol this week on that bill, so we'll see what happens with it. But I appreciate your uh, perspective on it. Sure. Um, Let's go back to the election stuff for a minute. Um, One that really is a constant battle is this question about when the primary date should be. Um, And we've moved it slightly. It's gotten, I think, about two or three weeks earlier over the last four years um, and in parts to try to comply with some federal law changes. Um, you're the chief author of a bill that would move the primary date from August, I think, to June, and it already yep. has Republican co-sponsors, including Minority Leader Kurt Doubt. Um, what, what do you think the prospects are for moving the primary date? We keep on having this conversation, and it seems like the, a lot of times the party leaders are the ones that are the most opposed to moving the primary date to an earlier spot. Actually, not so this time. The party leaders are actually for moving it, and huh. Ken Martin, the DFL party chair, feels strongly that we ought to do that. The, the, the dynamic at the legislature has usually been geographic, uh, a kind of a geographic divide, not a partisan divide. You have members from greater Minnesota who basically fear a June primary because, they say, they are basically stuck in St. Paul until the third week in May, the end of the legislative session, therefore giving an enterprising uh, potential primary challenger time to barnstorm the district while they, the incumbent, are uh, stuck in St. Paul. I, I, you know, I, I understand that. I respect that argument, but I, 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 I'm not persuaded by it because those very same legislators are also in the news all the time in their districts during that time. They, unlike me, who's a suburban guy, they have daily newspapers, daily radio, and daily, daily TV coverage, uh, which is difficult for us in the metro to fathom as state legislators. But they have media folks who are hanging on their every word and printing or broadcasting what they say and what they do. Um, I think it's good, in general, to move it earlier. Even moving it earlier would put us in the middle of the pack among states. We're still towards the tail end of states in August. The August turnout is dismal. It was yeah. 9% this time. We have, one of the, we have the best turnout in the general election in the country, but one of the worst in the primary in the country at 9%. August is almost the worst month because that's when people are out playing and doing what they do in, uh, in the tail days of summer. So this is a way to move it up, get higher turnout, and, by the way, settle partisan sort of insider differences early yeah. so that both parties are united. They're running a general election campaign for several months instead of just a couple. And overall, it makes sense to me. And, I, and I, you know, obviously, the, the concern that's been floated before is about what the role of the endorsement is versus the role of the primary. And right. both parties have uh, heavily relied on the endorsement process uh, to try right. to sort out who their candidates are going to be. Do you think this would cause... Uh, the primary to become a more relevant measure? Would it make the endorsement less relevant? Well, if you talk to Ken Martin, he would argue that it makes the endorsement 
more valuable uh, because um, it would be tougher for uh, someone trying to launch a, a campaign against endorsed candidate. It would be tougher for them to launch that candidacy unless they're self-funded, uh, like certain successful statewide politicians we might know. But barring, <laughs> but barring that circumstance, it would be tougher. And the, so the argument goes from the Ken Martins of the world, it would actually strengthen the endorsement. Yeah. Um, one other bill that you are a co-sponsor of, and uh, sorry, a chief author of in this case, is the National Popular Vote Bill. And this is another one that has some interesting bipartisan uh, supporters. I think Pat Garofalo signed on to your bill. Right. Um, I know that previously former Representative Laura Broad was a big supporter of this. Uh, right. We had Barry Fadham from National Popular Vote on the show actually about six, seven months ago. Uh, talking about how they were going to target Minnesota and try to get Minnesota to join states that have already agreed to allocate their electoral votes to the winner of the national popular vote. So I was wondering if I could get a little update about what the status of that bill is. The status is we're going to hear it in the House before the Elections Committee this coming Thursday. So we'll know a lot more after that vote. I'm confident that we have the votes to move it onto the House floor. Uh, and there it will sit until we have a vote on the House floor, assuming we do pass it. I, I just want to say for, for your uh, listeners who might not be quite as familiar with it, I think the key thing to remember about the Electoral College is it is not a system that compels a winner-take-all um, uh, set of rules. That the fact that 48 out of 50 states, all excluding, uh, all except Nebraska and Maine, choose to allocate their electoral votes based on a winner-take-all system. In other words, if somebody wins Minnesota by one vote, they get all 10 of our electoral votes. That is not compelled anywhere. That was not part of what the framers had in mind. If they if they did, they would have compelled it. Yeah, and we've seen that. In, you know, people in Virginia try to change that law so that it was allocated by congressional districts similar exactly, to the way Maine exactly. and Nebraska do it. And, and so we could do whatever we want. If we wanted in Minnesota, as absurd as it would be, to say that we're allocating our electoral votes on the basis of who's the tallest candidate, we could do that. This is exercising the power we have under the Electoral College, not getting rid of the Electoral College, to allocate it in the way we choose. And this would ensure, basically, bottom line, that the top vote-getter is President of the United States. And this is not about avenging Bush v. Gore. I had this view and was um, interested in this idea before that. Yeah. And so this is about just making sure that the top vote-getter wins. Yeah, we are not about really it. We only have about 30 seconds left, but I just wanted to return to one thing we started this conversation with, which is this idea of bipartisanship and how Governor Dayton has already said that he wants any election law changes to result to have some kind of bipartisan support. Uh, how, what's, the, what's the bipartisan feeling on your committee? Do you see people willing to compromise and to work together? I do, actually. I've been really... Uh, um I've been really heartened by that. Uh, we have the minority leader on there, Kurt Doubt, and he's been really great to deal with. The lead Republican is Tim Sanders of Blaine. He has been very frank and straightforward and honest. And we don't agree on all things, but there's uh, I, it, there's been no game playing. Um, we've just tried to find some agreement. We may or we may not in the end on some of these bigger issues, but I've been really impressed. I think that people have... Um, have conducted themselves well. Well, thank you very much. I really appreciate your time and your perspective on these important issues. Thanks again, Representative Simon. My pleasure. Well, thanks again for Representative Simon for being our guest today. Thanks for you to you for listening to the Left MN Radio Hour. We're on every Sunday from 2 to 3 p.m., sponsored by Left.MN, the Minnesota website that leans left. You can download podcasts or find out more at Left.MN. Until next week, see you then. <laughs>